The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We just finished a couple weeks ago. The first 12 chapters of the fourth gospel took us a little while, but we finished it. And and I told you that this first 12 chapters are called the Book of Signs. And the reason they're called the Book of Signs is because in these 12 chapters, we have seven sign miracles, which Lazarus has selected as representative of Yeshua's ministry and demonstrative of who he is. Now, most of the words... And works of Yeshua in these chapters are aimed at a wider audience of both Jews from Judea and Galilee who were, these are primarily evangelistic chapters. I mean, the goal of these chapters is to share the gospel, to bring people to faith. The purpose of the signs is so people would see that and say, this is what the Bible says Messiah would do when He came. They're evangelistic. Now, last week we began a study of the last nine chapters of this gospel, which are known as, anybody remember, what are they called? The Book of Glory. Alright? The Book of Glory. And in these chapters, Yeshua accomplishes His return to the Father. Now, unlike the Book of Signs, you got to catch this, alright? The Book of Glory is addressed only to those who have believed. I need you to make a note of that. I need you to register that somehow, Okay? These first 12 chapters have been evangelistic. He's drawing people in. He's bringing them in. These last chapters are addressed to His children, His disciples, His people. Now, within the book of glory, chapters 13-17 through form a division that we call the Upper Room Discourse. This is five chapters. It represents the final night of Yeshua's life. So basically, this teaching we have in this next five chapters, this is all happening in an evening. The disciples are there together for the Last Supper. They're getting this teaching. After the teaching, the Lord and the disciples go out. He's arrested. They have a mock trial. They hang Him on a cross. And they kill Him on the 14th of Nisan by 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, and He dies while the lambs are being slaughtered. The Passover lambs, because He is the true Passover lamb. Now, the Upper Room Discourse is something you don't find in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, As I said, this is teaching to His disciples. In this section, the, the emphasis is on love. The emphasis on the love of Yeshua for His own, His the believers, and Yeshua's teaching that believers are to love one another. So he's emphasizing in these five chapters, I love you, and you are to love one another. He loves us, and as his children, he expects us to love one another. Let's look at these first two verses. We did verse 1 last week. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Yeshua knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him. Now, we looked at verse 1 last week. We said the meal that we see here is not 
the Passover meal. The Passover meal was eaten on the evening of the 15th of Nisan, which was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The meal that we see in this text is the Last Supper, which took place on the evening of the 14th. Why is it that this meal cannot be the Passover meal? It can't be the Passover meal because you can't eat the Passover till you kill the Passover lamb so you can eat it. Alright? The Passover lamb is slain at 3 p.m. in the afternoon and then three hours later as sun sets, that's the 15th and that's the day they eat the Passover lamb. And so the Lord was in the tomb when they were eating the Passover meal. So this is not the Passover meal. And this is important. Because 1,600 years before Christ's resurrection, Yeshua predicted in type and shadow, Yahweh predicted in type and shadow, that Yeshua would be crucified on the 14th of Nisan at 3 p.m. That He'd rise from the dead three days later on the first day of the week, which was the Feast of Firstfruits. And it happened exactly as God said it would. The Passover lamb was a type. Yeshua is... The anti-type. He's the fulfillment of that. Now we finished last time with this statement in verse 1 that says, having loved His own who are in the world, He loved them to the end. In this upper room discourse, which deals with the ministry of Yeshua towards believers, love becomes one of the key words. The object of the love of God in Christ in these chapters is the newly forming people of God. The church. Now, we've seen the the word love used seven times in the first 12 chapters. But we're going to see it 30 times in this upper room discourse from chapters 13 to 17. There are more references to the Savior's love for His own here than anywhere in the Bible. This is the concentration. This is His teaching to His children. He says He loved them to the end. The word end here is the Greek telos which is very typical of Lazarus here. He's giving a double meaning to this word. The, the literal meaning, the obvious meaning is utterly, completely, to the end. But also to the very end of His life. He loved them to the end of His life. He died for them. This is the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. That God became a man and died to pay our sin debt. That is love. And verse 2 says, During supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Where is the supper taking place? Upper room. How do you know that? Lazarus doesn't tell us that. Well, we have three other Gospels, right? And the synoptics tell us this is in Jerusalem. It's taking place in the upper room. Why doesn't Lazarus give us that detail? He wrote his Gospel a lot later than the first three. So he's figuring, you guys are familiar with that stuff. I'm not going to give you the details you already know. I'm going to tell you other stuff. And he does. He gives us a lot of information that they don't. Now he says, during supper. Now there's a textual problem here. Alright? And that some manuscripts have, and supper being ended. That's how the King James translates this. Now you see a little difference there? (laughs) Well, which is it? Okay? Has supper ended or is it during supper? Well, during is a present participle. And a literal translation would be, while supper was in progress. And although the wording of the little Greek is somewhat literal Greek is somewhat ambiguous, 
verse 26 of this chapter clearly indicates that the supper is still in progress. Yeshua answered, It is He whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So they're having supper. He dips the bread. When He had dipped the morsel, He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, and then Judas leaves. So the supper, evidently, is still going on. And now Judas is leaving there. He says, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. What we see here is that human agents are becoming tools of the devil. That the devil is using human agents. So the devil now and Judas are kind of in a conspiracy together, an evil conspiracy, to bring Yeshua to the cross. And we'll look at this in more detail a little later in the chapter, but... When it comes to spirit beings, when it comes to the devil and Satan and demons, there's basically three positions that people hold. First of all, some believers don't believe in a personal devil or demons. To them, there's no such thing. Now, you might be saying, well, the Bible talks about it. Well, they think it means something else. Another position is some believe in Satan, demons, unclean spirits. And they believe they're just as active as they always were. Whatever the Bible says is still going on right now. They don't see any difference. That's another position. And the third position, the one I held, hold, is that uh, we believe in Satan. We believe in demons, unclean spirits. They're real beings, but they were defeated in AD 70. They were destroyed in AD 70 at the return of Christ when the judgment took place. Now, those who hold to view one, they hold this idea that Satan is not a real spirit being but instead is merely referring to a personification of sinfulness of the human heart. So this is just, Satan is man's sinfulness, I guess. Or they say it could be wicked human beings, but they just deny the spirit world. They would say that Satan is merely your own internal sinful human nature or inclination to sin. So this is not a being, this is you, basically. you got a problem. Well, how does that view fit with Scripture? Uh, for example, Matthew 4.1, Then Yeshua was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Is Yeshua being tempted by His own sinful nature? Be careful. Because to go that route is an attack on the deity of Christ. Alright? The Bible teaches that Christ was sinless. He didn't have a sinful nature. Well, is Christ being tempted by wicked human beings? Some would go that route. And most would say that Christ's adversaries were the Jews. Could Satan here refer to the Jews? The devil here is the Jews? Well, let's drop down in the chapter a little bit. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You think the Jews would be trying to get Christ to worship them? <laughs> the Jews, they, they don't worship anybody but Yahweh. They know that, okay? So that'd be kind of foolish that we, we want you to worship us. Well, is this Christ carrying on a conversation with himself? Throughout the context, the tempter or the devil is given personal attributes and clearly distinguishes from Yeshua as being another person. Nowhere in the context do we get the idea that the devil is merely referring to some sinful nature of Christ. And I think it's kind of ridiculous to think that the sinful nature within Christ demanded Christ to worship Christ. And if He did, Christ would give Christ 
the nation. Yeah, it's just kind of ridiculous. Satan offering Christ the nation, this is not an empty promise. He was ruling the nations. Sinful human beings couldn't make this offer to Christ. The devil had already put into his heart. Now, it seems, I think, rather silly here to think that Judas put into his own heart to betray Christ. See, those who deny the existence of Satan or demons want to make everything the result of natural consequences, which really denies the supernatural. That troubles me because the Bible is supernatural. Christianity is supernatural. It's not natural. There's nothing natural about it. You know, as Sharon was telling that story today from the voice of the martyrs, did any of that sound natural to you? I'm a Christian and it sounds foreign to me. But that's what Christianity looks like or should look like. It is supernatural. To deny the supernatural makes Christianity just a natural thing. And it's not. Let's look at verse 3. Yeshua, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand, and that He had come from God and was going back to God. Now, Yeshua knew that His earthly mission was nearly complete. He knew it was His last night. He knew that He's returning to His Father, to the glory that He had before. He knew that everything had been given to Him from the Father. In other words, He knew that He was in complete control. This is dealing with the sovereignty of God. This is talking about His majesty. He's returning to the Father. Going back where His glory was displayed. Now the point here is that Yeshua has the highest rank imaginable. You've got to get that from verse 3. He's the highest. He is God. Knowing that He has come from God in the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, and knowing He would die and would be resurrected, and that He would ascend to the right hand of the Father, knowing this puts tremendous emphasis or tremendous power into the rest of these verses. You know what's going to happen next? We've read it, right? What's He do now? He gets up from supper and He washes the feet of the disciples. God, in the flesh, takes the place of a servant. The hands that control the universe, including all gods and all angelic hosts, humbly wash the feet of a bunch of undeserving disciples. See, this is condescension. Verse 3 is supremacy. This is majesty. This is deity. And then the next verse says, He rose from supper. He laid aside His garments. Taking a towel, He tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. He laid aside His outer garments. I want to suggest to you that when he lays aside his outer garments, this is a picture of his death. He is giving them an illustration of his death. He's laying aside. Now, the Greek word translated here as lay aside is tithemi. And this same word is used in John 10, 15 of his death, where it says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Lay down here is tithemi. And so he rises from this supper... He lays aside his garments, and this may be another of Lazarus' double entons here, you know, picturing the Lord. This is a picture of his death. This is a picture of his humility. The plural 
is used here for garments, and it probably is a reference to more than one. If so, it would indicate that Yeshua stripped down to a loincloth, which was the dress of a slave. Now, the word towel here is lention. It's a Latin loan word. It's also found in rabbinic literature. It would have been a long piece of linen cloth, long enough for Yeshua to have wrapped around His waist and still had enough free to wipe the disciples' feet with it. So Yeshua adopted the dress of a menial slave, a dress that was looked down upon in both Jewish and Gentile circles. And He begins to wash their feet. Now, think about this. The one who is the very nature of God made Himself nothing took on the form of a servant. Does that sound like any Scripture you're familiar with? What's that sound like? Thank you. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hung on to. He emptied himself, that's the word kenosis, by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He humbled Himself. He took the form of a servant. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now the word form here is morphe. It has nothing to do with shape or size. Moulton Milligan say that morphe is the form which truly and fully expresses the being under which it lies. It refers to the essence of or essential being. In His essential nature, Yeshua became a servant. He took on the essence of a doulos, a bond slave. This is God, people, washing the feet of the disciples. And what we see here in this foot washing is also a picture of the kenosis. The, the fact that He leaves heaven and comes to earth to become a human. It's the self-emptying of Christ. And He says He washes the disciples' feet. I guess we need to talk about this for a little bit because we don't have any clue about, unless you came to a church from a church that practices foot washing, which still you'd have no clue about this because we're talking a whole different culture here, alright? In Palestine, in Yeshua's time, Almost all travel was by foot, okay? They're walking around. There wasn't hardly any pavement. There were some cobblestones here and there. And what they wore was sandals. So dirty feet were the inevitable results, all right? I mean, and you can understand, you know, they got sandals and they're walking through all this dust, all this mud, manure on the streets because from the animals they did have. And to wash one's feet, you know, was more of a necessity in that culture. You know, it wasn't some thing like, you know, you go to a church and someone takes off your shoes and socks and washes your feet. That's not what's going on here. It was more, you know, it brought hygiene. It brought comfort. Especially when you're going to have a meal together. Because they didn't sit at a table in chairs like we do where your feet are under the table nobody sees them. No, they're laying down on their arm and reclining and your feet are out there with some, near someone. All right, So let's get these things cleaned up. All right, And it wasn't considered a pleasant task. Jewish documents indicate that occasionally a student would wash a rabbi's feet. But that was even a rare thing. All right, And the fact that this meal is underway 
and nobody washed anybody's feet says that somebody, whoever set this thing up, failed to get someone to do this task. All right? Because it should have been done. I mean, in Yeshua's day, the guest were expected when they got there, they expected that you know the host would provide someone to take care of this task. We see this from Luke's Gospel. Luke 7.44 Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. So that was kind of expected. I got off the road. I'm coming in your house. My feet should be clean. You know, when John the baptizer wanted to show his humility, his low rank compared to Yeshua, what did he say? And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. What's he saying there? Why would he take his sandals off? So he could wash his feet. So he could wash his feet. To wash a guest's feet was the duty of a slave. And such a duty was considered so lowly that Jewish slaves, according to the Mishnah, were not to perform this task. you got to get a Gentile to do this. All right, this is a lowly, lowly task. Now that may be overemphasizing uh, foot washing, because it was a duty, though, that was performed by a slave. But it was done by others also. For example, a wife might perform this task for her husband. My wife does that all the time for me. All right? I mean, Abigail expressed her willingness to do this for David's servants when she received David's offer in marriage in 1 Samuel 25. A host for an honored guest as Abraham. Abraham, you know, was host for a couple special people. Remember the three people that showed up? He washed their feet in Genesis 18. But in the culture Yeshua, in that culture... And that supper, Yeshua was the last person that they would expect to be washing feet. He's the rabbi. And the disciples' human understanding of status and rights was being turned upside down by this. I mean, they're just, these guys are in shock. Okay, for them to wash a rabbi's feet was done occasionally, but that was rare. But for a rabbi to wash the feet of the disciples, no, that did not happen. In the kingdom of God, the roles are reversed and human understanding of status and rights are abolished. And that's what the Lord is showing them here. Let me give you the context of this foot washing from the other Gospels. because Lazarus doesn't talk about this here, but I think when you understand the context here, it makes it even more important. In Luke's account of the events of the this evening, the disciples were arguing about something just prior to getting their feet washed. Anybody know what they were arguing about? What? This is almost unbelievable, isn't it? Luke twenty two twenty four. 24. A dispute arose among them. What are you guys arguing about? They're arguing about who loved the Lord the most. Who would know? They're arguing about who would be regarded as the greatest. Wow, these are a bunch of humble people, aren't they? They've been with the Lord for over three years. And they're at the Last Supper, and they're sitting around arguing, who's the greatest? And Lazarus doesn't record this for us, but he tells us 
that more than probably more powerful than any teaching Yeshua gave, as they're arguing, he stands up and begins to wash their feet. This had to just like slap them upside the head so hard, knocked them into tomorrow. Okay, it's like, whoa, I mean, we're arguing about who's the greatest, and the greatest among us is washing our feet. God, their Savior, their Lord. Yahweh in human form bows down and washes their feet. Man, this context makes this so much more powerful. All right? These guys are unbelievable. Now, aren't you glad that we're not like these disciples? And we don't need a lesson in humility like they did. I mean, it's nice reading, it's history for us, but you know, we don't get much out of that because we don't really need it. All right? We're far beyond this, right? This is, I'm, I'm using sarcasm here, okay? The church today is too often filled with a worldly spirit of competition and criticism when believers vie with one another to see who's the greatest. I've seen it in churches over. It's, this is sickening, okay? Oh, I want, what the heck? I wonder what that was. I'm like, that's a high pitch there. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's, it's just sad when you see this in the church because the Lord is he's giving us a demonstration here. This is how the church is to operate. This is the kingdom of God. We operate in humility. Verse 6 says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, I don't know how many of the disciples' feet he's already washed so far. I don't know how many people were there. I believe it was more than the twelve. But he's washing their feet. But of course, when he gets to Peter, Peter's going to say something. Nobody else has said anything. But Peter couldn't, you know, Peter's got to object. It's just Peter. The Greek construction of his question suggests indignant emphasis. It's, are you going to wash my feet? In other words, this whole thing's backwards, Lord. This is not how it works. He viewed the situation as totally unacceptable socially. I mean, because Peter's looking at this strictly on a social, physical level. He wasn't wasn't at all getting the point. And again, you know, after three years, you think he gets something. So Yeshua tells him this. He says, Yeshua answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. But afterwards, you will understand. See, Peter and the others, he says, listen, you'll understand later. Metatauta, afterward, after these things you'll understand. Now this doesn't refer to the foot washing. It's not after I'm done washing your feet, you'll get it. It's an allusion to post-resurrection insight that the disciples got on Pentecost. When the, Lord, when the Spirit comes and the church begins, you're going to understand what I'm doing, but you don't understand it now. So what's happening here is Yeshua is urging Peter to trust Him. I know you don't get it. Would you just trust me? Peter didn't get it, and often we don't get it. You know, situations, circumstances happen in life, and we're like, what is happening here? And the Lord says, will you just trust me? We don't need to understand everything that's happening. But the Lord just says, trust Him. And so Peter said to him, Lord, I trust you. you just, it's good, whatever you want to do. No, that's not what the text says. Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. This is a strong double negative which meant never, no, never, under any circumstances will you wash my feet. Let me ask you something. Does that sound like something you say to your Lord? I mean, it just doesn't go together, okay? You don't talk to your Lord and Savior this way. And listen, Peter knew who Yeshua was. He had earlier said, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And yet Yeshua says, or let, and yet he says to Yeshua, you'll never wash my feet. I think this is pretty arrogant. He just doesn't trust the Lord. The Lord said, look, you'll understand later, and I can't wait till later. I What I understand now, you know, and it's not going to happen. So the Lord says to Peter, well, Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have any share with me. Well, what in the world does this mean? This is where people go off in all kinds of different directions. Okay, what is he saying here? If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Now, before you answer, let me remind you of a couple things we already know. All right. First of all, he's talking to Peter. Right? Peter is one of his disciples. Peter is a believer. And remember what I said earlier about the book of glory? It's written to believers. So these are believers here he's dealing with. These are believers he's talking to. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Commenting on this, you have no share with me. One writer says this. This is a Semitic expression indicating Peter will be cutting himself off from his Lord and from his share in the glory of Christ. Now that sounds pretty strong. Okay. MacArthur writes this. What did Yeshua mean when he said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me? Well, he was not out of illustration and into reality. He was talking about the need for Peter had, had to be spiritually cleansed. He needed what Ezekiel promised in the New Covenant, the washing. That's salvation, what, what Ezekiel's talking about, right? He says he needed what Paul wrote about Titus, the washing of regeneration. So Peter needed to be born again? He needed spiritual cleansing. And Christ was condescending, humiliating Himself, going all the way to the cross to provide the means of what that spiritual cleansing. See, most commentators will make it sound like if Yeshua didn't wash Peter's feet, Peter wasn't a Christian. He wouldn't have eternal life. But is that what Yeshua is saying? I don't think so. Well, let's, let's back up. Let's just start with the word. Let's look at the word share. If I don't wash, you have no share. What does share mean? Well, it's the Greek word meros. And, and I read many commentators that say meros means inheritance. And if I don't wash you, you don't have any inheritance with me. The funny thing is, I can't find it translated as inheritance anywhere. Okay? See, but inheritance bolsters their case of, well, you lose your salvation if you don't get it. But it's used 40 times in the New Testament, and it's never translated inheritance. Maris has a wide range of uses, and how it's translated needs to be determined by the context. Well, we find a story in Luke chapter 10, where Yeshua is visiting Bethany, and He enters the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And when He enters the house, Martha jumps up and runs to the kitchen. Right? She's like, oh my word, i got to get stuff ready. Okay? i got to get dinner ready. The Lord is here, you know what I mean? And I love that about her, okay? She's a, she's a servant. And she just feels like, i got to be hospital. i got to take care of this. i got to get everything ready. And Mary immediately runs to the Lord and sits at His feet. Now, sitting at His feet is, means what? Sitting at the feet is a, is a position of discipleship. You're there to learn. You're sitting at the feet of the rabbi. You want to learn from the rabbi. So, Martha runs to the kitchen, Mary runs to the Lord. So, Martha, that'd be fine. But Martha's in the kitchen and she keeps looking out and she sees Mary sitting out there. She's getting madder and madder and madder. And finally she goes out and says, Lord, will you tell Mary to come help me? And Yeshua says, He answered her, Martha, Martha. 
You're anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, the good portion here is to sit at the feet of the Lord and commune with Him, to hear His Word. And the term portion here is meritus, which is the feminine form of meros. It has the idea here of communion or fellowship. So, this is the idea. She's fellowshipping. She's chosen the good portion, the good part, the good share. We also see Meredith's use in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? Or what accord is Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now here portion is Meredith's. The New American Standard translates as what common, what common ground do they have? Now here, partnership, fellowship, portion, these are all pictures of communion. So the term share is a term that can refer to, refer to communion, to fellowship. So when you, Yeshua says, if I don't wash you, you have no fellowship with me. You have no communion with me. He's saying, Peter, it's necessary for me to wash your feet in order for you to have communion with Not in order for you, necessary for you to be saved. Peter's already saved. But Peter, you want to have communion. I need to wash your feet. Now look at verses 9 and 10. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only. You know, <laughs> this guy's always going overboard. My hands and my head. Yeshua said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Alright, so look, at here the Lord's telling Peter, you are clean. You've already had a bath. You just need to have your feet washed. The word clean here is katharos. And katharos is used of salvation. Look at it in 15.3. Already you are clean, katharos, because of the word I've spoken to you. Now the difference between here and 13, Judas is gone here. And later in 13, he gives him the sop, Judas leaves. So in chapter 15, there's no Judas. So he says, you are clean. He's speaking to the disciples here. Again, katharos is used of the disciples because they have been bathed. They are clean. Listen, what he's saying is they're born again. They believed in Yeshua. They have eternal life. They pass from death to life. They become sons of light. They're children of God. They're sheep and no one can pluck them out of his hand. They will not, they cannot be lost. He says, but not every one of you. Why does he say that? He says that because Judas was there. Verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Judas was still there. Now, in 13.8, the word wash here is the Greek word nipto. And nipto means to wash the parts of the body. Like, if I'm going to go wash my hands, I would say, I'm going to nipto my hands. I'm just going to wash them. But the word bathe there in 10 is the word luo, and it means to bathe all over. So, you know, you understand the difference. I say, I'm going to go take a shower, or I'm going to go wash my hands. I mean, we understand, okay, there's a whole big difference there, all right? And that's what's going on in this context here. If I don't wash you, nipto, if I don't wash your feet... But Luo, the whole bath. They've already had the bath. 
And Yeshua is saying, listen, you already had a bath. You don't need to take another bath. You don't need to get saved over again. You're already clean. I just need to keep your feet clean. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. Now, Yeshua's reply in verse 10 has generated almost endless discussions about baptism. You can get that, right? Because you see the word water, you get even a hint of water anywhere. People go run to baptism, all right? I mean, it's amazing. Regardless of what you think about baptism, the issue is not here foot washing as opposed to whole body baptism. Baptism is nowhere in this chapter, all right? Don't go throwing water in there. There's none there, all right? There's water to wash the feet with, but, you know, the water, the bathing water is symbolic, all right? Now, when Yeshua says in verse 10, and you are clean, but not every one of you, the you is plural, referring to the disciples. You, all you disciples are clean except one of you. And that's Judas, alright? Now, then he says, except for his feet. Now, let me say here, there's another technical problem here, alright? And some manuscripts don't have the words except for his feet. Now, if you take those words out, this thing reads a whole lot different. The one who is bathed does not need to wash, but is completely clean. Well, the problem is the preponderance of textual evidence favors this phrase being there. And that's why the better translations, they have this phrase in there. It's there, okay? So what I see happening here is that Yeshua is distinguishing between two types of cleansing that the believers experience. Alright? Bathing, a total bath, a cleansing. This is salvation. Luo means to bathe all over. And the word wash, nipto means to wash parts of the body. So we could call this, let's say, forensic and family cleansing. Um, <clears throat> forensic would be, you know, God giving you salvation. That's being bathed. Family is, you know, dealing on a personal level. When a, belie- when a person believes in Yeshua as Savior, God removes their guilt. He deals with their sins. Every sin they've ever committed, past, present, and future, is covered. And Yeshua spoke of this forensic or legal forgiveness as a total bath. Luo. Now after a person believes in Yeshua as Savior, he or she commits sins. They're going to commit sins. And those sins hinder their fellowship with God. Now I know that there's some people in our camp today, in the Predators camp, oh, we don't sin anymore. Well, I don't know about you, but I do. Okay? I haven't got the special thing you got that you know no longer allows me to sin anymore. All right. My sin is all paid for, but I still sin, and that sin hinders fellowship. Let me show you. I think that one of the, you know, as Sharon was talking this morning, I thought, wow, this really goes with today because one of the marks of a disciple of Christ is forgiveness. Okay? We are people who have been forgiven. Of all people on the earth, we should be willing to forgive. Because we, as Christians, are image bearers. We bear the image of God. And one way to demonstrate that image is through forgiveness. And when you heard that story today about the man, well, they killed my mother, I'm here to forgive you, not here to hurt you. And we're like, that's foreign to us. It shouldn't be. That's how Christianity is supposed to act. Now look at Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will forgive you But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, 
neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Is that what it says? If you don't forgive, you're not going to be forgiven. What in the world do these verses mean? Are we saved by forgiving others? Will we lose our salvation if we don't forgive others? No. I think that what is in view here is not judicial forgiveness. This is relational forgiveness. It's not forensic forgiveness, but family forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness views God as a judge. God looks down and He says, you're guilty, you've sinned, you must be punished. But all who have trusted in Yeshua have their sin debt paid in full by His work. They are forgiven. This is a verse you got to know. If you don't have this verse memorized, you need to get busy. Okay? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Yeshua. Now the Greek word that Paul uses here for condemnation is katakrama. And katakrama is defined by Suter in his lexicon as punishment following the sentence. You understand there's a difference, right? The sentence is, you're guilty. The punishment is, now you get this. Okay? And in our judicial system, you as messed up as it is, you have, uh, you, know, you have a sentencing phase. Okay, you, you're guilty, and then you have a pay. Okay, what are they going to get for this? What do we do with them? Alright? So, katakrama is the punishment. It's in a passive form in the Greek, and it's not likely to refer to the sentence. It's not talking about the edict from the judge. It's talking about the punishment, which in this case is spiritual death. See, in Romans 5.16, it says that because of Adam's sin, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Katakrama. The result of Adam's sin was katakrama, punishment, which was spiritual death. And now he's saying there is no spiritual death. They're never going to be condemned, never going to be punished because Christ was punished for us. That's our position, believer. We are righteous before God. We stand united to Christ. We share all He is and has. We share His righteousness. So God says to us, I declare you forgiven by virtue of your faith in Yeshua. But the judicial act of forgiveness, by that act, all your sins, past, present, future, You're completely forgiven. You're justified forever. But I think what he's talking about in this passage is relational forgiveness. Although our sins are forgiven, listen, if we don't forgive others, it affects our relationship with God. And if you think that, okay, I've become a Christian, now I can do whatever I want, I can sin, I can hurt others, I can be unloving and mean as possible, and it doesn't affect you, It will not affect your eternal destiny. But I guarantee it will affect you here and now. And all you got to do is go on to Matthew 18 and read the story about the unforgiving servant who is handed over to the torturers. What? That represents a believer. He, He won't forgive, so he's handed over to the torturers until he pays all. That's a That's a severe picture. We don't stop being the children of God. But we lose an intimacy. We lose communion is broken. How do you walk with the Lord when you're living in sin? And we restore this communion that is lost through foot washing. What does he mean by that? Well, one of the things he could mean 
the same author, Lazarus, in 1 John says this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I've heard many believers also say, well, this verse doesn't apply to us. This is just a salvation verse. He's not talking about the unbelievers here. This book is written to believers. Confess here is the Greek word homologao. Homologao means to say the same thing as another. In other words, to confess your sins is to say the same thing about your sins that God says about them. And you know, we don't do that. We say, well, I did this, but that's not a sin. You're disagreeing with God. You are not confessing. You are denying. That's not a sin. We don't sin anymore. Well, it's to say the same thing about your sin that God does the same thing about your sin the Bible does. And when you confess your sin and forsake your sin, you're cleansed. There's a cleansing there. So the Gospel brings judicial forgiveness and obedience along with confession of sin will bring joy that comes from relational forgiveness. That's another word today that seems like it's almost a dirty word among Christians. Obedience. Oh, that's law! People, we're following Christ. He, he says, if you love me, do whatever you want. Your Bible say that? You better rip that page out. If you love me, he said, keep my commandments. So how do you demonstrate love to the Lord? You obey Him, okay? If I do not wash you, you don't have any share with me. So Yeshua compared this family forgiveness to washing, nipto, washing your hands, washing your feet. They become dirty while you walk through life. Therefore, Yeshua was illustrating the importance of believers obtaining a cleansing from the Lord periodically as He washed the disciples' feet. You guys are clean, but as you walk through this world, You know, your feet get dirty because you sin and you get caught up in the world and I need to cleanse you. Now the basis for both types of forgiveness are Yeshua's work on the cross. There's no doubt about that. But we have to realize the need of this on an ongoing basis. Thayer's lexicon offers the following explanation of verse 10. He says, The idea which Christ expresses figuratively is as follows. He whose inmost nature has been renovated born again, does not need radical renewal, but only to be cleansed from every several fault into which he may fall through intercourse with the unrenewed world. People walking in holiness is not the easiest task in the world in which we live. But it's what we're called to. We should stand out from the crowd. We should be different. People should shun us because we're so different. People should not want to be around us because just our very life makes them uncomfortable. And we seem to work hard to do the opposite, to fit in, to blend in. I thought Edersheim had a comment in his book, uh, The Temple, that kind of interesting to fit with this text. So I just want to throw this in here for your uh, thoughts here. He says, The subterranean passage lit on both sides led to the well-appointed bathroom under Herod's temple where the priests immersed themselves. Okay, so the priests go there, they do an immersion. After that, they needed not all that day to wash again, save their hands and their feet. They had a bath, they didn't need to do that again, which they had to do each time, however often, they came for service of the temple. It was no doubt to this that our Lord referred in His reply to Peter, He that is washed need not save to wash his feet, but he's clean every whit. Now, I think the Lord's, Illustration goes way beyond what was going on in the temple, but I think that's a picture that helped you know, maybe some of them understand, although 
I don't know, the crowd that Yeshua was dealing with, um, especially in this part, they weren't really fond of the temple. Okay, so I don't know how much that connects there. But All right, In this text, again, Yeshua is talking to His disciples, and He tells them they're clean. Meaning they've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, they're believers, but He tells these believers, you need to have your feet washed. That's why, you know, I mean, I don't get how people argue over verse 8. Just go to verse 10 and it straightens everything out. These people are clean. The ones he's talking to are clean. You've been clean. You had a bath. Just wash your feet. They just need to wash their feet. They need to deal with sin so they can stay in fellowship with Christ. People, I believe this is just as true for us today as it was for them. I realize the audience he's talking to are his disciples. I hope I'm a disciple. So that applies to me too. All right? I need to work to stay in fellowship with the Lord. In the sense, I need to strive to be obedient, to honor Him. I've had a spiritual bath, but I still need to deal with sin because I got a problem there. And I need to be washed by the Lord so I can stay in fellowship. And we need to walk through this life in what I like to call dependent discipline. We're dependent on Christ. You take that, you take that out and you forget it. Because you can't be disciplined to do this. But it's dependent discipline. In other words, I have to discipline myself. i got to be in the Word of God. I need to be in prayer. I need to work on keeping short accounts with the Lord. So I have to discipline myself, but all the time I have to be dependent upon Him because there's no way it works out any other way. So we need to depend on Christ, we need to discipline ourselves to walk in holiness. Because people's sin is destructive. And to continue in sin is to harm your fellowship. I think that what Lazarus is teaching us here is the same thing that we saw in Jude. Jude taught it this way, in Jude one twenty and 21. He says, but you beloved, get that beloved, he's writing to Christians, building yourself up in your most holy faith, And praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves there. The word keep is toreo from teros. It means to guard as a warden. It means to keep an eye on, to keep something in view, to hold firmly, to attend, to watch over. People, to watch is to be diligent. Okay? It's not to be slack, but it's to be paying attention. Watch, guard. He's he's calling here for the saints to keep themselves in the love of God. Now, in here is a locative of sphere, indicating as Weiss translates it, keep yourself within the sphere of God's love. Now, that simply means keep yourself in the place where you experience the blessing of God's love. It means to stay in the sphere of God's love. It means you walk in obedience to His revealed will. It means you remain obedient. As you do that, you will enjoy the fullness of His love and blessings. Christ said, again, if you love Me, keep My commandments. That is, do the will of God. Do what I've asked you to do. These are new covenant commandments. Which basically is, you know, when when He had to boil down, He said, Lord, what's the greatest of the commandments? Love God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, seconds like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So when he says, if you love me, keep my command, he said, you gotta love one another. You gotta love God and you gotta love one another. 
You can't love God. John says, First John, if you don't love one another, you got to love both. Obey my Father. Obey what the Bible tells you. Be obedient. Don't be rebellious. Don't fight against the Word of God. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. See, in order for a believer to stay in the sphere of God's love, we need to continually, believers, have our feet washed. And I'll tell you, one of the ways of doing this is being plugged into the Word of God. John 17, 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. The Word cleanses us. So we've got to be in the Word, and we've got to be willing when we see where we're off base to agree with God, confess our sins. So we can have that cleansing. So many Christians don't even read the Bible. They don't spend any time in the Word of God. And you go through life and you think you got it all, you know, I'm doing fine. Of course you're doing fine. You've removed the mirror. You can't even see what you look like. The Word of God is a mirror and it shows us where we fall short. And when we see that, we can make changes. To be a child of God is one thing. To walk in intimate fellowship with the Father is something else. So believer, how is your relationship with the Father? I mean, do you have an intimate relationship with God? Do you commune with Him? Is He the first thought in the day, the last thought at night? Do you deal with circumstances based on His revealed will and the Word of God? I mean, listen, we all know what a, an intimate communion is like to have with somebody. And it's hard to have that if you're not spending time with that person. And I think this is one of the things that separates us from the stories we hear about Voice of the Martyrs. They're not into all this other stuff we're into. They're not. They're single-minded. They're, just, they're working on a relationship with God. We are mostly into entertainment. What program can I watch? What, what new phone can I do? What can I, how can I, you know, it's all about that stuff and we're not connecting with the Father. We're disconnecting. And God's more like a life preserver we hope someone will throw to us when we get in trouble. People, I think there's so much more to the Christian life that's only experienced through an intimacy, a desire to know your Father to spend time pouring over the pages of Scripture. Learning who He is. Learning what He wants. Responding to that Scripture by crying out to Him to, you know, to change you and mold you that you would be all He's called you to be. I know. <laughs> Quit teaching and gone to meddling. I know, but listen, I'm just so convinced that you know, we, we so badly need our feet washed. But it's not going to happen apart from the Word of God. It's just not going to happen. And, and we can think we're doing okay. And you know what's really sad that I've seen in the church so often? When you find somebody who is really zealous, really on fire for Christ, everybody else in the church looks at them like they got a fever. What's wrong with them? I don't know, but I want what they got. Okay? 
And that's the sad thing. You get that way and you kind of blow the curve for the rest of the church and so the church is not comfortable with that. Well, I pray that we'd all make every believer around us uncomfortable and desirous of a relationship we have with our Father that is so intimate, nothing in this world shakes us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for Your grace to us, Lord, that, Lord, I realize how dirty my feet get on a daily basis. And Lord, I need that cleansing. I want the communion, Lord. I want to walk with You in intimate fellowship. I want to be like Enoch, Lord. I just want to have that communion with my God. Lord, I pray you'd give each and every one of us the heart of Bereans. Father, I pray that people wouldn't accept what I've said today. They wouldn't reject what I said today. They would study what I said today to see if these things are so. Lord, may we come to you for that cleansing on a regular basis. Lord, bring us to a place where we look like we've got a fever, a spiritual fever because we are in love with our God. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Amen.